All right, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter number two. Uh, we are in this series that we even titled The People of Christmas. We're going to close out this series uh, by looking at the main character next week, which is Jesus. Uh, but we'll, be, we'll deal with that here in a couple days. And uh, we'll talk about Jesus on Christmas Eve. But this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And if for some reason this is your first Sunday here, let me, just, let me just let you know where we've been. We've been looking at the story of Christmas, but looking at it through the people, through the characters that make up the Christmas story, the people of Christmas. And one of the things that I said every week, I said at the beginning of this series, and I said it every week, I'll say it right now, that the story of Christmas is really a story that reminds us that God is always faithful to his promises. Like, if you need to be reminded of that this morning, if you need to be encouraged in that this morning, then, then let, me just, let me just share with you that really this Christmas story is just another example that you can trust that God is faithful to all of his promises. Ten Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled just in the birth of Christ. And that reminds us of a fundamental truth, that fundamental truth that I just mentioned, that God is always faithful to keep his promises. And there's many truths that are found in the Christmas story. Here's another one that we've been really reminding ourselves of, is that God wants, God desires to use his people to accomplish his purposes. Does he have to? No. Does he need to? No. Is he obligated to? No. But does he desire to? Yes. God desires to use you and use me, sinful people that fail all the time, that God desires to use you and use me to accomplish his, his eternal purposes. That ought to blow your mind this morning. And he's not concerned about your pedigree, how much money you make, what your background is, what your IQ is. We mention this every week, but what is he concerned about? He's concerned about your heart. And that's what we've been looking at in this Christmas story. Mary, a heart of faith. Joseph, a heart of humility. The shepherds, right, a heart of praise. This week, we're looking at this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 2. And if you're taking notes, here's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the wise men and this type of heart, a heart of generosity. Generosity. Now, here's what you need to be reminded of, because oftentimes what we do in this Christmas season is we just allow tradition to dictate what's actually found in God's Word, right? So I mentioned a manger scene last, last week, I have, and I mentioned how I have a manger scene. Here's what I've also found. You need to have shepherds in the manger scene, right? Remember I said if you don't have those, you've gotten gypped. Uh, but you know what's often in the manger scene as well? Wise men, Right? Well, here's the reality, not so true. Like it's, it's, you know, it makes your manger scene look a little fuller. You know, it's, it's very nice. Tradition just kind of tells us that. But here's what I'm here to tell you. I'm here to burst your little Christmas bubble, maybe a little bit. Wise men weren't at the manger. Here's why I say that, because it probably would have occurred, the wise men that we're going to look at this morning in this passage of Scripture in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, probably arrived months later, some even think a few years later from the birth of Christ. Here's why, because in Matthew 2, 11, we see that Jesus' family was staying in a house, whereas Luke 2, 7, which we looked at last week, he was what? He was, they were there and Jesus was in a manger. So, sorry, my manger scene 
is incorrect and so is yours. But nevertheless, I just, I just share that because I want us to be informed, but here's, here's, the, here's really what I want to remind us of with generosity because here's what my mind does, and it's probably true of yours. When we have the term thrown out, generosity, what's our mind go to? All right, let me pull out my wallet, let me open it up, and all right, I'm supposed to give something. Like this message is, is I'm just waiting for the ask. That's what we think of with generosity, and I put myself in that same boat. That's where my mind often drifts. But here, let me, let me share with you what generosity isn't, and then let me share with you what generosity is. First of all, generosity is not motivated by guilt. It's not motivated by guilt. It's not a result of having an abundance of resources. It is a matter of the heart. Like if you write down one thing this morning, I want you to write that down. Maybe even right next to the margin of this passage of scripture. Generosity is not motivated by guilt. It's not. That's not what motivates me. Man, I, I, I feel this pressure and, and I need to share with you why generosity is important and hopefully I'll just make you feel ter- terribly guilty and you'll be like, all right, you've twisted my arm. Huh, what's the ask? Have you ever found that doesn't last long? Right? Like you can make me feel guilty. You can, you can make me feel guilty in order to do something, but you know what I've found? It only lasts for that one ask. Because generosity is not motivated by guilt. Here's another thing, and I'm going to expound on what I just said. Generosity is not a result of having an abundance of resources. So sometimes we think, man, I'll be generous when I make X. Here's what I found. And I was a, when I was a seminary student, and it was just Lori and I, seems like forever ago. Just Lori and I living in seminary housing. Now, they provided housing for us. Lori taught sixth grade. Um, at a Christian school, and, and I was a graduate assistant. So yeah, they paid for my you know, seminary degree and, and, and provided housing for us. You know how much I took home? 500 bucks a month. Lori made like, after taxes, less than 20 grand. And man, if you asked me then what an abundance of resources look like, I'd throw out a number that today I would not say that. Because when we think of an abundance of resources, it doesn't matter what you make or what you have, it always goes up. Have you ever found that? If you make 30,000, you're like, man, if I could just make 40,000, woo, we would be rich. And then some of you are like, well, man, I make 40 and that ain't my heart. Or I make 20 and if I could just make 25. It's so funny, my daughter was doing like this little uh, life skills thing and, and, and the teacher had her like say, you make this much money and, you, and, and then they told them what they, the bills that they had to pay and she for the first time got woke up to the reality of what life is. <laughs> like she's like, I'm broke. And I'm like, welcome to the club. <laughs> but listen to me, generosity is not a result of abundance of resources. It's not. Because you can have an abundance of resources and still not be generous. And you can have very, very, very little and have the most generous heart. Why? Because generosity is a matter of your heart. It's a matter of your heart. 
Remember how I said the Christmas story is a story that reminds us that God's always faithful to his promises. But here's another thing that the Christmas story is. It is a story of generosity, is it not? Mary being generous with her reputation and submitting to God's plan for her life that I'm sure she didn't ask for. Joseph being generous with his reputation, knowing that he has a wife who's pregnant with someone with with a child that's not his. We talked about that. Think about the shepherds, generous, generous. To be able to be mouthpieces, knowing they were looked down on society, that, that, that putting that aside, putting aside that, that people would have thought they were crazy, nobody's going to listen to us. I mean, we're only a step above the lepers, but no. Generous. Think about the wise men, what we're going to look at this morning, and I won't comment on that because we're going to unpack why the wise men show us a heart of generosity, but let's think first and foremost the generosity of God. That in the midst of my sin, Romans 5, 8, at my worst, God demonstrated his love for me through Jesus Christ. Think about the generosity of God. Think about the generosity of Jesus Christ, that he would leave perfection and all of the glory of heaven and put on human flesh and submit himself to such humble means. The Christmas story is a story of generosity. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at what a heart of generosity flows from. If it's a matter of the heart, then what does does this heart of generosity flow from? Well, I think there's three things, and let's start in this passage of Scripture in verses 1 through 6, and I'll mention the first thing that I think a heart of generosity flows from, but I want us to read the passage of Scripture first. So let's start in verse 1. Hopefully you're there. Look at what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. All right, so I'm about to burst another one of your little Christmas tradition bubbles. You're like, man, you're killjoy this morning. Here it is. It doesn't say three. Doesn't say three in the Greek, promise you that. Just says wise men. So we three kings, Christmas carol I like. I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to singing that. Wrong. Here's another thing. There's not three, and they're not kings. Just, just totally ruining your Christmas, right? Here's another thing the wise men were not. The wise men were not Jews. Actually, most people think that they were either from one of these three regions, Arabia, Persia, or Babylon. And we learn from the book of Matthew, or book of Daniel, I'm sorry, that the Magi were among the highest ranking officials in Babylon. So there is some, some evidence, there's, there's reason why tradition calls them kings, even though they're not. They were high ranking people in Babylon. So I'm, I'm being tongue in cheek, but, but they were, they did have prominence, they did have a platform, they did have significance. Now here's something else you need to understand, because I want to give you some context of something that we know that's so familiar, as I said before, man, when we get to Christmas season, we just check out sometimes, we've got to be disciplined. Let me give you some things that maybe you did not know. The phrase wise man, wise men, and verses 1 and verse 7 is this Greek word. I don't throw out a lot of Greek words, but this Greek word is this, magos. That's the word for wise men. And it's sometimes translated magi. Here's what's significant. The English word that that ought to remind you of 
is magic. Interesting, right? So in Daniel 2.2, wise men were asked by Nebuchadnezzar to interpret his dream. So we have evidence there in Daniel. And then in Daniel 5, Belshazzar, he's that one who's, who's worshiping and using the temple, uh, using the temple um, cups and, and different instruments, and he's, he's putting on a pagan service, and he's just, just, it's just a total, like, Big party, for lack of a better word. I mean, just, just think about just the debauchery that would have been there. And he's throwing this big party. Remember that finger that comes out of nowhere and writes on the wall telling Belshazzar his days are numbered. Well, in Daniel 5, which is where this story, he calls and brings and says, would the enchanters and the astrologers come and interpret this? That's the equivalent of this word magos. So these are the types of people that these wise men would have been. Magicians, astrologers, and enchanters. Now look at what it says in verse 2. It says, this is what they ask. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now we already said that there weren't three kings in this story. But here's what there are. There are two kings. Right There's King Herod, and then there's King Jesus. And it's interesting that this phrase, where is he who's been born king of the Jews, has the idea that they were asking everyone. Like they were going around and they were asking everyone that they could find, hey, where's this king of the Jews that has been found? Now that seems like a weird question to be asking people that you've never met before. Like we know the story, so we think to ourselves, of course they'd be asking that. But if you've never thought this before and someone's asking you that, you're like, dude, like I don't know you, like who are you, like you're dressed weird, like... But there's significance of why they were asking that because it says there, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship. That word worship has the idea of falling down flat on your face, kissing the feet or the hem of the garment of the one who has needs or deserves honor. Now it also says there, for we saw his star. Now Numbers 24, 17 would have been the passage of Scripture that these wise men would have been referencing that would have caused them to see that this star, whatever that looked like, we don't know what it would have looked like, was there because Numbers 24, 17 says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now here's what I thought was interesting that I never knew before as I was studying this passage of Scripture. We might think, man, the wise men were asking a question that would have seemed totally out of left field to everyone that they would have, at, that they were, would have been asking. And, and I thought the same thing, but here's what's interesting. During that time, there was widespread expectation of the coming of a great king, a great deliverer, and that's based on Roman historians. So this Roman historian, um, which I'm going to struggle with his name, but Suetonius, speaking of the time around the birth of Christ, wrote this, a Jewish historian, talking about what was, the, what was the kind of the atmosphere during this time in, in Israel. It said, there had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at the time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. 
So there was, there was this idea for whatever reason that, that, that someone, people from Judea are going to come and they're going to rule the world. Another Roman historian, Tacitus, wrote this. There was a firm persuasion that at this very time, so this time of, of what we're reading about, at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. Another Jewish historian, which I know of this gentleman, Josephus, reports in his Jewish Wars, that's something that he wrote, that about the time of Christ's birth, the Jews believed that one from their country would soon become ruler of the habitable earth. Why do I say that? Because it helps us understand this question that the magi, that these wise men were asking, was actually a question that a lot of people were asking because of what the climate was of the day. So it actually wasn't this off of left field question. Now verse three, just giving you a lot of context this morning. So stick with me. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. So King Herod gets wind of the wise men asking this question. And that word trouble literally has the idea of tremendous anxiety. And we'll talk about why that's the case here in a little bit. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. So do you understand, not just does Herod have anxiety and, man, what's going on here? All the people do. Why? Because this was the atmosphere of the day. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod assembles all of these experts, and he inquired of them where the Christ, that word Christ means anointed one or king, was to be born. And look what they say. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. That's a prophecy, Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So these scribes and these chief priests say, oh, it's a prophecy of Micah 5.2. Now I say all of that to say that verses 1 through 6 gives us the first thing that a heart of generosity flows from. That we can look at this passage of scripture and pull out this, this application. Here's the first thing. A heart of generosity flows from worshiping Jesus as your king. What do we say? Generosity is not motivated by guilt. Generosity is not a result of abundance of resources. Generosity is a matter of the heart. And a heart of generosity flows from, first of all, us worshiping Jesus as our king. And what I see in this passage of scripture, just in these six verses, is so much around that principle. Because when we are not desiring to worship Jesus our King, let's look at the results that happen with that. Like if you're in your, you're, you're right now in your life, you're like, man, I'm here today, but honestly, like, like there's not this tremendous desire to worship Jesus as his King. And if that's your desire, then probably this is what's flowing out of your heart. Number one, indifference. Indifference. Don't really care. Let me just say, none of us have ever, are ever immune from that. There can be times of indifference, and the reason why is, is there's not this desire to worship Jesus for who he is. Here's why I say indifference. Because no one could answer the wise men's questions. 
I mean, there was, you had Isaiah, you had Jeremiah, you have Micah, you have Hosea. They all speak of a king to come. Now, Herod's Bible knowledge was below par. Can we just say that? Like, if he was playing Bible trivia, have you ever played, like, like the Bible or, or, or just trivia games in, in, in just in general and you like get a Bible category, like trivial pursuit and you get a Bible category? Dude, they are the simplest answers, right? Who built the ark? <laughs> or you ever see Jeopardy? And they're like the Bible category when they have it every once in a while. I haven't watched Jeopardy in years, but last time and it's like the most simplest answers like who killed Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey? And you're like, dude, these are like layup questions. Well, Herod's knowledge of the Bible, even though he's king of Israel, which by the way, he was a pseudo king, he didn't have right to the throne, but King Herod had no idea what this prophecy or that a king would come and rescue Israel, had no idea. So what does he do? He calls the experts. And obviously the experts at least know the prophecy of Micah because they mention it. I mean, this was a layup question. This was an easy question. One plus one equals two as far as the Bible goes. Like easy question. But here's what I find is interesting. The people that know the answer give the answer, but then they do nothing afterwards. You see that? I see no activity there. Let's just Check my check me. Don't don't take my word for it. Um, let's see the assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where they where the Christ was to be born. They give the answer. I see no activity. You know what they did? Man, I'm gonna go and bury my head back into the scripture. But how many of us are like the chief priests and scribes? And we got all the Bible knowledge in the world. Give us a category and trivial pursuit on the Bible. Dude, we got it covered, man. I can give you all the books of the Bible. I can say them. I can even say them super fast if you want me to. Man, I got the Romans road. I can give you every passage in Romans that talks about how someone can come to Christ as their Savior. Man, I got that down. We got all the answers. But I wonder if someone is like, hey, how are you worshiping Jesus as king? Do you want to worship Jesus as king today? Oh, man, it's there's some, there's some good games on TV today. Can't make it. My favorite team's playing. Oh, man, it's just tremendous sale, and I've been late in doing my Christmas shopping. That's obvious. I'm not speaking of you because you're here. Uh, I'm late doing my Christmas shopping. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that off. Oh, you know what? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sleep in today. Not going to really give time to getting in God's word myself on my own time or pray or, or, or go to church. No, 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 no. But you know what I found? It has nothing to do with how much you know. It's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of you understanding. Wait a minute, Jesus is my king. He's deserving of my worship. So lest we're too critical of the chief priests and scribes, let's turn the spotlight on us and ask ourselves, man, am I living a life of indifference? And man, don't we live in a world, and can I get any more specific, a church world of indifference? We have to guard ourselves against that all the time. We gather together every Sunday, we sing the songs, we raise our hands, we open up God's word, but if we're truly honest with ourselves, maybe some of us in here would say, but Jesus Christ is not the king of my life. 
Indifference has crept in. Here's another thing that happens when we don't desire to worship Jesus as king, and it's seen by Herod. We feel threatened. We feel threatened. Because we know who's the rightful king, but we don't want to make him so. And so we feel threatened, just like Herod felt threatened. Jesus threatened Herod, and Herod knew it. He knew it. He knew what was at stake with the birth of this Jesus who was king. He knew that he was threatened that this king could dethrone him. He knew that this king could rule over him. He knew this king would take allegiance from him. And man, I'll tell you, when I'm faced with something and I'm living a certain way and maybe Jesus, I've, I've caused Jesus to creep off the throne in my life and when I'm faced with that and I'm in God's word or I'm sitting and I'm hearing God's word or, or someone even who loves me challenges me in something, I am automatically what? I am threatened in the moment. I'm threatened because I'm reminded that the person who deserves to be king, who is king, is threatening that right now I want to be king. See, those are things that happen in our heart when we're not desiring to worship as king. But can we go to the positive? Let's look at what happens when you desire to worship Jesus as king. Knowing that this is what flows out of a heart of generosity. And I love that God uses these wise men who nobody would pick to be instruments to share with us this. Here's the first thing that I see that happens. I mean, our time is something that we see as worthy to give Jesus our King. Our time. Here's why I say that. It doesn't tell us the specific distance that the magi, that these wise men travel but I actually researched it. So let's say they came from Babylon. Let's just say that. We don't know for sure. They, sure. they for sure came from a region somewhere in that direction. But let's just say they came from Babylon. From Babylon to Jerusalem is over 1,600 miles. I don't need to remind you, no trains, no buses, no cars, no planes. It took them a long journey. That's why they weren't there in the manger, in the in the barn or whatever that would have looked like but they were willing to give their time because they knew who they were worshiping they were worshiping the true king and when i'm worshiping my king man i am generous with my time i don't see it as a waste i don't see it as a waste to invest in someone i don't see it as a waste to be faithful even though i know the journey may be long some of you are serving Jesus, you're in his word, you're praying, you, you, you feel like you're in a journey, you're feeling tired, you're like, man, when is God going to show up? But can I encourage you that Jesus is king, he's worth your time, he's worth the journey. Here's another thing, he, they take time to search the scriptures. See, when I'm worshiping Jesus as king, man, I'm generous with my time. Time to search the scriptures. Time to get in the scriptures. I love that these wise men, they weren't, who knows how God got a hold of their heart and even motivated them to get into God's word, knowing the pagan background that they came from. But nevertheless, they come across this passage of scripture in Numbers 24, 17. They search the scriptures because they see this star that they've never seen before. 
And in searching the scriptures and taking the time to do so, their motivation was, man, we just read that there's this king. We have to go. We have to give of our time. I posted this on my social media, but I want to just mention it because I thought it was so good to just remind ourselves, I mean, generosity is not just about money, man. It's about our time. It's a matter of the heart. I'm giving my time to my king. And a study for the Center for Bible Engagement polled about 40,000 people to learn how people are engaging with the Bible, with the Scriptures. I thought this was so interesting. So for the people that engage Scripture one time a week, so that could involve you come to church, you're opening your Bible as we preach. If you only open Scripture one time a week, it actually has negligible, like really doesn't make a difference in your behavior. Now, that's not a motivation for you not to come to church. Like, if you're looking, like, that's not the heart in that. What I'm saying is, is if you only are doing that and nothing else, it's not making a huge impact on, on your behavior when you walk out of these doors. Scripture two times a week. Like, oh, I'm in it two times a week. Here's what they also found. 40,000 people, right? They didn't poll 1,000. They're not like some of these political polls. Like, 40,000 people. Two times a week, negligible effect. Now, when people are engaged in the scriptures three times a week, this study revealed that it be, they begin to see a little bit blip in the radar to someone's personal behavior, but not a tremendous amount. When I say personal behavior, actually it affecting the way that you live. But they did see some change. But here's what was interesting. Scripture four times a week, which basically you're in it on a consistent basis, four times a week, had a radical effect on a person's behavior. Like the chart went like off the charts. Here's what they actually found, some, some practical things of, of the way that it radically affected a person's behavior. Feeling lonely in these individuals dropped 30%. Bitterness in relationships, whether that be friendships, marriage, relationship with the kids, dropped 40%. Anger issues dropped 32%. Alcoholism dropped 57% in people that are engaging in God's word four times a week or more. Feeling spiritually stagnant, like, oh, my relationship with the Lord just feels stale. How many of us have said that? That dropped 60%. Viewing pornography dropped 61%. Engaging the scriptures more than four, time, four times or more a week. Sharing Jesus with others jumped 200%. Discipling others, like not just sharing the gospel with someone, but someone who trusts Christ. Hey, would you come along with me and I'm going to help you learn what I'm learning? That jumped 230%. Why? Because you're engaged in God's word. You have an idea of what that looks like. I share that with you to say this. That when I am worshiping Jesus as my king, man, I see that me giving my king my time is not something that I'm losing out on, but it's something that I'm gaining. These wise men in giving their time, they gave their time, and what did they have the opportunity to do? They had the opportunity to see Jesus. They also gave their talents. Remember, these were high-ranking officials, man. They had a platform. They had knowledge. They were gifted individuals, but they didn't see them putting that aside 
to worship the king is a waste. Here's the second thing that a heart of generosity flows from. And it's found in verses 7 and 8. Look at what it says. Then Herod summoned to the wise men secretly. Remember, we already knew that Herod felt threatened. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. So Herod tells them to go to Bethlehem based on what? Based on what the chief priests and the scribes said from the prophecy in Micah 5 2. So he sends them to Bethlehem. Look what he says to them. He says, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I may too may come and worship him. So he tells the wise men, Hey guys, I want to know too, man. I want to worship this king. I want to do that as well. Now we obviously know that what Herod's intent was, but nevertheless, that's what Herod tells these wise men, however many of them there were. Now here's what I want you to know. Herod, King Herod, was cray-cray. Crazy. I don't know if that's still a term today. Like, like I, just as a side note, like I was talking to our kids at dinner, and they're telling me all these phrases that are new, and I mean, talk about feeling old. Like, I had no idea. They made no sense to me. But I'm looking out at the crowd, and the majority of you are a little bit younger or older than me, so we all understand what cray-cray means. He was crazy. Crazy. Tremendous builder, but crazy. Here's how crazy he was. Just to give you some context of King Herod, and though he's not a character that we're looking at wanting a heart uh, to strive after, nevertheless, let me just share with you. He slaughtered the last remnants of his dynasty that ruled before him. Like, those people are a threat. He put to death half of the Sanhedrin. That was a religious council. He killed 300 court officials, executed his wife and mother-in-law and three sons, eliminated everybody that was a threat. And as he lay dying, so now he's on his deathbed, arranged for all the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled. So he's dying. He wants all of the court, the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled, and he kills them as soon as his own death is announced. So he gives the order, hey, when I die, slaughter all these people. Here's why. So that the people might weep instead of rejoicing that I'm dead. Cray cray. I'm telling you, that, that's why we say Herod was crazy. Matthew 2.16, if we just went further, we're not looking at this passage this morning, but in Matthew 2.16, Herod actually asked that every child under two years of age, many of you know this already, in Bethlehem and all the region are killed because he feels that this Jesus is a threat to him. Now listen, I know none of us in here are like so against worshiping the king that we're looking at killing someone. But it reminds me of the second thing that a heart of generosity flows from. Number one, worshiping Jesus as your king, but let's continue that thought. Worshiping Jesus as your king without an agenda. Without an agenda. No agenda attached. King Herod obviously had an agenda. And it was the most extreme of agendas. But nevertheless, he had an agenda. Hey, hey guys, I want to come and worship with you. I want to come and see this Jesus. I want to worship him. No, no, no. He wanted to worship Jesus with an agenda. Man, how often are we guilty of worshiping Jesus with an agenda? Has this ever been true of you? Because it's been true of me. 
man, I've been lazy in getting in God's word. We already, we already mentioned a study that shows the significance of that in our personal walk. I've been lazy in getting in God's word. All of a sudden, a crisis comes into my life. All of a sudden now, man, I gotta get in God's word. Crisis comes into my life. Oh, man, I gotta get back into church. I haven't been to church in months. Now all of a sudden, whew, crisis running back into church. And if that's what God brings into your life to bring that, then that's great. But here's what I'm getting at. God, forgive me. And God, forgive us for worshiping Jesus so often with an agenda. Like, God, I'm doing this. I'm writing this check. I'm, I'm posturing myself this way. I'm giving my time. I'm giving my talents in this way. Why? Because I need you to come through in X. And it's really not motivated. God, I just want to worship you as king because you're worthy of king. Because you have been so generous to me. You sent Jesus Christ to live and to die and to be risen for my sins. God, my motivation in worshiping you is pure. It's not based out of what I can get because I've already been given the greatest thing. May we not be like King Herod and worship Jesus as king, but do it with an agenda. Because at the end of the day, even that statement, worshiping Jesus as king with an agenda, is actually counterintuitive to what that word even means. I can't worship Jesus as king because I want him to do what I wanna do, because what am I doing? I'm actually saying that I'm king, and Jesus is my servant. Anyway, we need to be reminded this morning, man, a heart of generosity flows from Jesus being worshiped as king, but without an agenda. Here's the third thing, and we'll be done. Look at verses nine through 12. Look at what the wise men do after they have this little powwow with King Herod. Verse nine, after listening to the king, what did they do? They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. So this star is literally leading them to Jesus. The star, when they had seen it, rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly, or they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed from their own country by another way. Here's the third thing a heart of generosity flows from. Worshiping Jesus as your king. But with what? With your emotions, with your posture, and with your resources. You see all three of those things in these three verses. They worship Jesus as king but it's with all their emotions. It's with their posture. It's with their resources. And what I love in the story of Matthew, you see the continuity between the gospels and the Christmas story, even though they're shedding different light on different situations, but Matthew is echoing what the angels of the Lord say to the shepherds in Luke 2, 10 and 11. I'll read it for you, where they say to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, key phrase, that will be for all the people. All the people. The wise men being ordained by God to be individuals to actually go and to worship the Messiah. Individuals 
that at one time practiced the occult, something that we would never condone. At one time were magicians, astrologers, enchanters, whoever it was. At one time were pagan and, and, and worshiped the devil rather than worshiping the Lord. God got a hold of their heart in some way and they actually have the opportunity to worship Jesus as king. What a tremendous example and illustration once again in the Christmas story that the gospel is for everyone who desires to worship Jesus as king. Doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter what you've been involved in before, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your heritage that you may be ashamed of, Jesus wants to be worshiped by everyone. That's why we say the gospel is for every man, woman, and child. That's the story of Christmas. But they worshiped, as I said, Jesus as king with their emotions. And I say that because there's that phrase, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And it reminds me of something. My emotions are God-given. They're God-given. They need to be embraced. They don't need to be pushed down. They need to be embraced. Our emotions are what make us human. Our emotions are God-given. But how many times do I, my emotions draw me away from the Savior rather than drawing me to the Savior? And what I love in this passage of Scripture is when they see Jesus, what's the result? And they have great joy. Maybe some of us in this Christmas season, man, we've been, we've been looking at our eyes of the tragedy and what we miss in this Christmas season that we didn't have last year. And I don't minimize that at all. I just make mention of it. Or being driven by, by some other emotional motivation that's actually pulling us away from Jesus as King. And what God wants us to do this morning is, no, 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 no. I want you to figuratively peer in the manger. I want you to focus on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2. I want you to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Because when I'm looking to Jesus, the result is joy. That God, I want to I worship you with my emotions. I want to admit right now I'm sad. I want to admit right now I'm angry. I want to admit right now what I'm feeling so that you can actually speak into it. I want to worship you with my emotions. What else do they do? They worship Jesus Christ as king with their posture. It says when they see him, they literally fall down and they worship him. Are we worshiping Jesus with our posture, posture of our heart? God, you're king, and I'm not. They worship Jesus with their resources. And we always point to that, right? The gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. But here's what I want us to be reminded of. It goes back to what I said at the very beginning, that generosity is not motivated out of guilt. It's not the result of abundance of resources. It's a matter of the heart. Because gifts of the gold and the frankincense and myrrh, listen to me, the giving was not in addition to their worship. It was an outflow of it. It wasn't, God, I'm going to worship you and I'm going to give you these things. No, no, no. Them giving these things was an outflow of their heart. It was a matter of the heart and it was demonstrated. Those gifts were a sign that their whole hearts worship Jesus as their king. So when I'm generous with the resources that God has given me, understanding that everything that I have is from him, that's why we say when we take up an offering every Sunday that this is another part of our worship. It's not an addition. 
No, 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 it's me saying, Lord, you're king. It's a privilege to worship you as king. And I'm gonna do it with my emotions. I'm gonna do it with my posture. And I'm also going to do it with my resources, understanding that I have been given these things to give back to you. Why? Because you desire to use people to accomplish your purposes. Now, we don't know. Have you ever thought this? Have you ever asked this question? What did Mary and Joseph do with the gold, silver, gold frankincense, and myrrh? You ever asked that question? Maybe I'm the only inquisitive person in the room. Like, what'd they do with that? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. We know the gold is a symbol. You've heard this before. Gold is a symbol of, of Jesus' royalty. Frankincense was something that would have used in the temple. That was a sig- symbol of his divinity. Myrrh was something they used to anoint bodies that was a symbol of his humanity but what did they do with the gifts well here's what's actually interesting we know that mary and joseph were poor and did you see that phrase at the end of verse 12 it says having been warned by god in a dream so evidently god appears to these wise men in a dream and tell them not to go back to herod it says they departed for their own country by another way and evidently And we know this, that Joseph is told that they need to go to Egypt. Now, if they're poor and if they don't have a lot of resources, knowing the journey that that would have been and the resources that it would have taken, you can kind of assume, though we don't know for sure, that I wonder if they used the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh to help pay the way for them to escape from Herod's decree so that Jesus the Messiah would not be threatened by what King Herod was doing. Why don't I just mention that as a side note? Because it's a principle about generosity. God always meets the needs of his people through his people. And I would love for a stork or a carrier pigeon to come down every time I prayed for God to provide something. And God, would you just provide what we need for the renovation of the children's center? It appears on stage. It'd be amazing. But every time that I've seen God meet a need in my life, and I don't have time to share all this, and if you think about every time that you've seen God meet a need in your life, he's done it through people. Think about it. Now, who am I who has been the recipient of that generosity? Who am I to not continue that with others? And more importantly, who am I who has experienced the generosity of God through Jesus Christ and and someone who's placed their trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, as someone who lived perfection for my sin and died on the cross for my sin and rose again three days later, someone who's been the recipient of generosity, who am I to not look for opportunities to be generous to others? My dad always told me this illustration around Christmas time and it stuck with me and I'm gonna share it with you. How many of you have ever been to a birthday party? Raise your hand. Everybody in the room. No shock there. Here's what I've never found in all the birthday parties that I've been invited to, whether I was forced to go or whether I wanted to go. That never at a birthday party, when they put in the card, they don't put in the card, please don't bring any gifts, which means they want a gift. Just a side note. And everyone brings those gifts. Nobody, when the time comes to take out the cake and to blow out the candles and to sing happy birthday. Nobody says, man, I can't wait to open up my gift. And the person whose birthday it is sits there and watches everybody else open their gifts. 
Never been to a birthday party like that. If that if you if that's ever been true of your birthday, I am sorry. But my dad told me that illustration because I don't know about you, but greed can easily be the theme of Christmas. Dad said, think about it. Would you want a birthday like that? But how often do we treat Jesus like that? We ought to worship him every day, every Sunday. But in this season, especially when we're reminded of the generosity of our God and the generosity of Jesus Christ, who are we to hold back and be like a spoiled, rotten kid at somebody's birthday party who's only consumed with themselves, not knowing what the purpose of they're there to honor someone else?